Good morning, Third Street. Good morning. How y'all feeling? Man, it's good to be with y'all this morning. I am extremely excited to be here, despite the cold. This is probably, uh, maybe this and Jesus himself coming back are the only two things that could make me wake up on a morning like this and think to myself, I'm going to go outside. That's about it. It's pretty much limited to that. We were actually talking about it last night, my wife and I watching the, uh, watching the Chiefs game, at how many empty seats there were in Arrowhead, which blew my mind because I was like, yo, this is like a playoff game. Like, it's, you know, this is a really big deal. And either Kansas City fans have either just gotten so comfortable with having playoff games that they just don't even care about going to the game anymore, or it was that cold. I think it was probably the latter, right? It was that cold, right? Uh, hey, if you don't know me, my name is Corey. Uh, like KT said, I have the honor of serving alongside of Pastor Kenny uh, as the co-pastor here at Third Street Community Church. And this morning is my distinct honor, my distinct privilege of being the one to bring forth the word of God to you all. We started last week, uh, we kicked off our brand new year with a brand new series. Church, if you're with me this morning, say, for freedom's sake. The scripture says you were set free for what? For freedom's sake. Galatians chapter 5 lets us know that you were set free for freedom's sake. In other words, I have been set free for my own good. Not really, right? For, but for freedom, right? I have been set free with the intent of freeing others for the next several weeks. I want to talk about this central theme of freedom. And so I invite you this morning to join me in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your physical Bibles with you, you'll notice that it's in the New Testament. The New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So you're looking at the third book of the New Testament. We're going to go to the fourth chapter. That's indicated by the big number four in your Bibles. And then once you get to that big number four in the Gospel of Luke, you can go ahead and drop yourself on down to the tiny number 16 that starts in verse 16. If you don't have your physical Bibles with you, it's all good. As always, we have it up on our super sturdy screens right here for you all. So this is the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 4, starting in verse 16. The Gospel of Luke says it this way. He, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth, where Jesus had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't isn't this Joseph's son? 
And then Jesus said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that you that took place in Capernaum, do here also in your hometown. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not set to any of them except a widow, a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time. There were many in Israel who had leprosy, and yet not one of them was cleansed except for Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up and drove Jesus out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd. And went on his way. My goodness. Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, your children, your grandchildren, they will not be going to school. Ain't no bus coming through your neighborhood. Hopefully some plow trucks. But no school bus. Right? No drop-off line tomorrow. You're welcome. Right? Tomorrow morning, we celebrate and acknowledge the life and the legacy of a Baptist preacher named Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It's a holiday we observe every year to honor the work that Reverend King did in the way of desegregating our society and acquiring equal rights in the fields of education, labor, and a whole lot more. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself that it should be a no-brainer that tomorrow morning we take some time off to observe and celebrate this, this preacher's work, you would be, according to Gallup polls, right in the 95% of Americans. 95% of Americans understand why it is important and why it is a no-brainer that we stop and we observe MLK's work tomorrow morning. But did you know? Did you know that in 1966, which would have been in the, in the peak of Reverend King's work, that in 1966, a Gallup poll would reveal that MLK actually had an unfavorable rating of about 63%. That means the majority of this country did not approve of the work that Reverend King was doing. Now he has a holiday. Now we see it as a no-brainer. Of course we observe MLK. But in the 60s when he was actually preaching in real time, when he was actually speaking these words on behalf of the Spirit of God, the majority of the country was like, nah fam, we're not fooling with that. You're going to go ahead and have to sit down. The majority of the Americans thought he was doing more damage. They thought him too divisive. And furthermore, he was actually viewed as one of the top three least respected Americans. In 1968, when he was murdered, 
Nearly a third of people in polls were so bold as to say he had it coming. While still less than half of the country said that they were sad to see him go. Did you know that it wasn't until the 1980s? It wasn't until the 80s that the idea of a holiday was introduced and wasn't actually even until the 90s that the last state legally passed the idea that MLK Day would be a thing. Arizona, in case you're wondering, didn't pass it till 1994. And you want to know what pressured them to do it? This is for free. I didn't have this in my notes. I just happened to know this. What pressured them to do it is that the NFL said, if you're not going to pass MLK Day as a national holiday like the rest of us have, then you don't get the 1993 Super Bowl. Magically, in 1994... The idea passed and they got the Super Bowl in 1996. But gosh darn it, can we get politics out of sports already? I do want to note, I do want to note that as of now, as of most recently, Gallup conducted another poll of that same age group that would have been polled in the 60s. Those who walked in the 1960s that are still alive now are polled Today, and MLK's approval rating had gone from 40-some percent in the 60s to now over 89%. So I guess sometimes it just takes time to change minds. Freedom is something, is something that parts of our fallen world and our depraved society will actively fight against. The idea of inclusive freedom is something that it will often take people a while to come around to. But we cannot escape that freedom, on every level, I might add, is something that is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Freedom as declared by Christ himself and as intended by God in the Garden of Eden, freedom is meant to be experienced at every level. By the time we pick up this passage in Jesus' ministry, his, his work is something that was beginning to be whispered about. Right. There were rumblings of some stuff that he had gone that he had gone on and done in in Capernaum. Right. And so what we see in this passage is is Jesus returns home after the rumblings begin. Right. He comes back to his hometown, but his reception in his hometown was not as much like a Messiah coming home as you want, you might expect. It was more like a recent graduate who had like started a business that was off to a good start, right? Um, Jesus had, had come home to, to Nazareth and people were like, oh, it's so good to have you home. Hey, your mom tells me you're doing great, right? It was that type of reception, right? Definitely not recon- recognizing him for his divinity per se, um, but, but more so like, you're doing good, kid. Keep it up, right? 
And so as the honored guest returns to his hometown, as is uh, ritual on the Sabbath day, they all gather in the synagogue. And as is um, ritual in this day and age, the honor of reading from the prophets is bestowed upon the honored guest, Jesus, right? Now at this time, what would have been expected of this esteemed guest who wouldn't have been given the sermon, right, wouldn't have been given some of these other honors, but definitely can read from the prophets. See, there was the reading from the first few books, right? And then they would let somebody walk up, read from the scroll, sit back down. And then the service would continue. That was the extent of it. But here in Luke's telling, we have, uh, we have a pretty interesting situation that pops off, right? So the day of the Sabbath arrives, he's welcomed into the synagogue, and he's bestowed with the honor to read from the prophets. This, this right here is, wh is where I wish, I wish, KT, I could spend more time right here. I wish I could. I wish I could because there's so much that I would love to nerd out on for a little bit, right? I would love to tell you about the literary elements. I would love to tell you all of the things that, that Luke does in his writing that met, lets me know that he's giving uh, 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 emphasis to what Jesus says, right? Like, like the fact that, that, he, that he tells the order of Jesus's events or Jesus getting up. He says, Jesus gets up, Jesus takes the scroll, Jesus unrolls the scroll. Why is that necessary? Why is that necessary to say, right? Why don't you just tell us Jesus read it, right? Why are you like, yeah, he stood up, he walked over, he got the scroll, he unrolled the scroll, he read. No kidding, Luke, right? Except for the fact that he reads what he has to read, and then he says he rolls the scroll back up, he hands it back, and he walks back to his seat. Why are you describing this man's movements like this? Unless it was to put emphasis that the central focus of what I mean to communicate is in the middle, right? Imagine yourself telling a story, and all you're really telling a story is something that somebody else said, right? But you're setting it up. It's a dramatic telling. You're like, all right, listen, so my guy gets up there, right? Listen, so, so he gets up there, and he walks up, and he's in front of everybody, right? Well, no. No kidding he's in the synagogue right he's in front of everybody he takes that scroll man he takes that scroll he walks over he opens that scroll and you know what he says listen to what he said this is crazy this is what he said and then you tell what he said he said he said and then this man is just gonna roll it back up hand it back to him and go back and sit back down it's a dramatic telling in order to emphasize the point of what Jesus was meaning to communicate I wish I had more time to nerd out on the actual passage that Jesus reads himself, which we can find in Isaiah chapter 61, right? I wish I had more time to tell you that what Isaiah was referring to was the year of Jubilee, a year of Jubilee that was supposed to happen every 50 years. We have no evidence that it ever got there, right? But what was supposed to happen was that a high priest would usher in this year. And in this year, some wild stuff that nobody has ever heard of would happen. Things like debt would be cleared. I heard 18 college students shout amen. Uh, things like Things like slaves would be freed, right? Things like land would be returned to its rightful owners, not the people who had taken it under the rule of governmental oppression, right? Those things would happen in the year of Jubilee. I wish I had time to tell you about how the Jews, the Israelites themselves were still waiting. 
I wish I had time to explain to you how agonizing it must have been to still be waiting for that day to arrive. But I can't because I want to spend most of my time focusing on the fact that Jesus walked into the synagogue that day to read that specific passage to let them know that Jubilee had arrived, that the fulfillment was upon them, and that indeed the fulfillment of those promises are ours today. Jesus says, I myself am here to fulfill the promise. Jesus is announcing his central focus. Jesus' message, his mind, and his, miss, and his mission is our freedom. This allows me to arrive at the first point that I want to communicate to you all this morning, which is that freedom is the central focus of the gospel. There is no way of viewing the gospel of Jesus Christ without having at the forefront of our minds liberation. It's not possible. And what I love so much by all that Jesus is clear to include, he is clear to include the good news to the poor. He's clear to, to include the release of prisoners. He is clear to include the recovery of sight to blind. He is clear to include freedom of the oppressed. In other words, he's going through every possible level that we can be experiencing slavery. Everything from the chains that are on our own hearts to physical chains that our society places on us. Jesus is clear that the intent of his message is to to get rid of all of those chains, to abolish slavery from off of your hearts to out of this world and everything in between. It is the central focus. It is the central message of the gospel. And there is no way of viewing Jesus's life, Jesus's ministry, Jesus's message without acknowledging that fact. Amen. Can't do it. You can't do it. And so, what we have to ask ourselves this morning, if that is indeed true, then where have you, where in your life have you been waiting on freedom? Where in your life have you been waiting on freedom? Maybe this is something that is as evident as what you're going through in life and everybody around you can see it. Maybe it's, maybe it's freedom from something that the person next to you doesn't know. It's freedom from something that you suffer, that you, that, that you suffer with quietly, right? Some of, us, some of us are locked up in a battle with addiction. Some of us, some of us are locked up in a battle in our minds. Scripture talks about that a lot, right? Some of us are locked up in some relational dynamics. And we're trying to figure out how it is that we're going to experience freedom. But the point that I have to land on to kick us off this morning is the fact that Jesus' intention is to do so. Jesus sees your chains, even if the person next to you doesn't. Jesus sees your chains even if the world around you doesn't understand them. Jesus sees your chains even though it feels like everybody else is trying to keep you in them. 
Jesus sees your chains and it is his intent. Make no mistake about it. If you take nothing else away from what I'm about to say, I hope that you hear this. Jesus' intent with your life is to set you free. Some of us, some of us may, may hear that and, and think, well, you know, I, I, Pastor, I, I have started to experience some spiritual freedoms. Right. I have started to experience the transformative work that that the Holy Spirit can 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 do in my life. But but I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting on the day that God finally breaks some generational curses. Right. I'm still waiting on the day where 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 God establishes freedom for not just me, but all of my people. Right. I'm still waiting on the day. And 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 and, and can I just tell you that in this modern society, what I hear more than anything as justification for people's disbelief is that how can a God who says that he loves, how can a God who says that he wants to set free, how can he allow there to be these situations where people are in bondage? And my answer to that is always the same. I have to let you know it's because we as a people have not recognized the role of Jesus Christ in our life and we have put our hope in political systems that he did not build. We have put our hope in economies that he did not establish. We have put our hope in figures that Jesus didn't, that God did not send. And that is why we have ended up in the situation that we're in, but that has never from the start changed God's intention to establish freedom. Where have you been waiting for freedom? Because the good news that I came here for just long enough in this freezing cold to tell you this morning is that Jesus intends to fulfill it. Yes, Jesus' proclamation was bold. It was bold, but here's what I appreciate. Some were okay with it, while others were like, um, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Second point, excuse me, second point that I wanted to communicate to you this morning is that some will refuse to see it, right? This is something that's been established since his birth. John chapter 1 says explicitly, something I quote often, says explicitly that though Jesus came into the very world he himself created, the world that he created did not recognize him. And it was true even in his hometown. You would think on the one hand, if anybody would be like, man, I knew he was going to do it. I knew he'd be on the come up. I knew he was the Messiah. I knew, I knew, I knew. It'd be the ones that were kicking it with him when he was four. You would think, wouldn't we all think that it'd be his homies from back in the day that were most rooting for him? But ain't it just like our modern society to see somebody from our hometown doing something dope and us to be the first ones to be like, he ain't even like that. I remember when we were in choir, I was the better singer than him. Crazy. Talking about deals and stuff. I remember we were hooping in the gym and in middle school, I broke his ankles. That's actually what motivated him to be such a good athlete, right? We're so quick to do stuff like that. And by the way, nobody believes you, so stop telling it. As for free. Listen, 
there were some that were like excited by the hope of what Jesus was sharing, while theirs were others that scripture tells us looked at Jesus and thought, isn't this Joseph's son? And I know that the dangers of casual reading don't allow us to, to, to catch all of what is wrapped up in them saying Joseph's son, right? But basically what they're saying is, nah, isn't his dad a carpenter out here talking about the father has sent me? Dude, your father makes chairs, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? You remember the one, the one who had a son that wasn't actually his son? You remember Joseph, the one who was engaged to that girl who suddenly got pregnant and she made up that whole story about an angel of the Lord told her that the spirit of God was going to, you know, and then this whole thing. And then they had to run and get out of town to have this baby because they knew that ain't none of us really buying that story. You know, isn't that, isn't that this kid? Are you going to tell me that he came to fulfill the year of Jubilee? They couldn't see it. Right. And I would argue, I wish I had more time to make this point, KT, because I would argue that they couldn't see it because of the lens through which they actually see themselves. Right. They know that they weren't about to do it. Right. I would argue that they couldn't believe it because it through the because of the lens through which they see their hometown. Right. It's not the narrative we see in Scripture. Doesn't nothing good come from Nazareth. Right. Everything. You know, we just a bunch of bums in Nazareth. We just do everything we can all the way to just survive a little bit in Nazareth. I believe they couldn't see it because of the lens through which they see their own hope. Man, we're just we're just trying to get through, man. Good old folks in Nazareth, man. We're just trying to get through. We're trying to work to see another day, support my baby, and keep it pushing. They couldn't see it. They couldn't see who Jesus was. They couldn't see who Jesus was telling them that he was. They couldn't see the hope that Jesus was actually offering them. They couldn't see it, but it didn't change who Jesus was. What I love so much about this part is that even though his hometown couldn't see it, it wasn't like God was like, dang, your hometown don't even believe you? Never mind, I got to go with somebody else, bro. Figure it out. Good luck. God never abandoned him. God never left him just because other people couldn't see it. It didn't actually change who Jesus was. It didn't change his identity. It didn't change his redemptive story. It didn't change his purpose. It just, it just didn't. Church, even once you begin to experience the transformative power of the Spirit of God, even once you've been set free, make no mistake, there will be people in your lives that just don't see it. And it's not that you're not doing enough, right? I want to free you from that thought process this morning. It's not that you're not doing enough. It's just that they were never going to see it. It's just about how they see themselves, right? And sometimes we can't explain it. Sometimes we just selfishly don't want other people to be free because we recognize that we're not free, right? It's not actually about you at all. It's actually about the way that they see themselves, their own circumstance, their own hometown, their own upbringing, their own whatever, right? Some people will refuse to let you be different. They will always be the ones to call you back to your old self. They will always be the ones to call you back and say, nah, fam, I was with you when you were 17 years old and you made that big public mistake. They're, the, they're going to be the ones that are always going to bring you back to the ground. But let me tell you this 
this morning that doesn't change who you are, that doesn't change your status of being free, and that doesn't change God's intent with your life to be free and to set others free. It doesn't change it. There will always be people who don't see it. Y'all, listen, just ask anyone I grew up with, okay? I'm just telling you. I came to Jesus later in life, and anyone in my hometown will be quick to tell you, right? It's, it happens. But we will drive ourselves crazy if we only focus on those who can't let us be different. I remember not that long ago, gosh, let me think real quick. About six years ago, I started doing this thing because isn't it funny how, like, you can have 100 people tell you, that they're affirming of what you're doing. They see what God is doing in your life and they want, you, they want to encourage you to keep going. And you got five people that are haters. But what sticks in your mind are the five people who are haters. You can have all these people throwing their support, but the two people who don't are the ones that you remember. And I got to a point not that long ago where I couldn't, I couldn't get the haters out of my head right? It was affecting the way that I would, that I would think. It was affecting the way that I, that I, that I would preach, right? And one of the things that, that I started to do was anytime I got an encouraging text message, anytime I got an encouraging note of any type, I screenshotted it and I saved it. I screenshotted it and I saved it because in those days of mental torment, when I would start to be convinced that I was nothing God was using, that I was just an angry whatever the heck, that I was letting people down, that I was the worst leader somebody had ever seen. Anytime I started to be convinced of these things, I would force myself to go to those notes of encouragement and make myself read them. Because the fact of the matter was, even though some people can't see it, even though some people aren't going to let me be different. And as a matter of fact, they never will. There are lots of other people around me who are willing to speak to Christ's identity in me. And I had to remember to go to those things because we always remember the haters, but rarely do we, do we remember those who spoke words of encouragement over our lives. I have notes from y'all in there. I have notes from you in there. I have notes from you in there, right? And I, for, I have to force myself to remember to go back to those things because those were the people who saw God in me. Amen. Not my actions from yesteryear. You feel me? Some won't see it. Some won't want to see it. But we cannot allow ourselves to be detracted from the focus. Which leads me to the last thing that I want to communicate to you all this morning. And that is this cold, cold fact. The temperature in this gym right now is so appropriate for this fact right here. You ready for it? Yes, sir. Where God intends freedom, Come on. the world will fight back. Yeah. Doesn't that suck? The most interesting thing to me, this is wild, y'all. Go with me for a second. The most interesting thing to me about this passage, as I was praying and reading through this passage, what stood out to me this week was something that has never stood out to me before. I mean, I knew the whole story of like Jesus went to the synagogue. He says some stuff. He reads from the scroll. He, he proclaims himself to, to, to be a fulfillment. And people get mad and throw him off a cliff. But this is what's wild. When you actually read the text, this is what's wild, right? Jesus does, uh, uh, he heals people in Capernaum. And his hometown heard about it. 
right? He comes home, they were cool with that. That this carpenter's boy from Nazareth would have the audacity to go around and heal folks, cool with it. He comes home and him being acknowledged as an honored guest, so honored as we're going to let him read from the scrolls in synagogue, they're cool with it. He even has the audacity to read a prophecy that he then tells his entire hometown as he sits down, I just fulfilled it. And they were mostly cool with it. You know when they got mad? Was where he said, think about Elijah. Elijah could have saved any of the widows during the drought. He could have been sent to any of them. And yet the Lord sent him to a non-Jewish widow. Think about Elisha. Elisha. Elisha could have healed any Israelite with leprosy. And yet none of them got healed. Except for that one from Syria. That's non-Jewish for those of you not keeping track at home. Isn't it interesting that what got the people most upset in synagogue was that still mindful of their earthly chains that Jesus would insinuate that the Lord's freedom would extend to the Gentiles rather than hold the Gentiles accountable for the Jews' chains. In other words, you want to have the audacity to leave Nazareth and go heal people? Cool. You want to have the audacity to come back to synagogue, read prophecy that you say that you yourself feel? Fine. You even want to have the audacity to tell me this in my own house of worship? Fine. But don't you dare tell me. Don't you dare tell me that not only is the good news that I'm set free for me, but it's also for my enemies. How dare you? Isn't it funny that they don't get upset until Jesus insinuates that freedom is not just for them, but that God's freedom is actually for all people. It's not until they think that Jesus is also going to be favorable to the people that they don't like that they try to throw him off a cliff. How much of the human condition does that speak to? And I'm going to leave most of this alone because I'm going to let KT tackle most of it next week, right? But the idea that I want to communicate here is that the spirits of our world, the powers of our world, the structures of our culture and society will actively fight against the idea of an all-inclusive freedom. It's consistent with scripture. It's consistent with world history. It's consistent with your experience. The spirits, the powers, the structures of our world will actively fight against all-inclusive freedom. The enemy is going to be, might even be willing to concede loss of control of your life over to the Lord. But the moment that begins to set off a chain reaction is where the world is going to have a problem. 
right? The world is going to be mostly okay when one or two people establish their freedom. But as soon as it sets off a chain reaction that uh, uh, in people that they've held in chains for years, that's when we got to fight back. Isn't it unfortunate that it isn't until we start to talk about this all-inclusive freedom, the fact that the gospel is for all people, that that's suddenly where even Christians get upset. It's tough, but it's a fact that we have to deal with. That if you want more than just your freedom, but for freedom's sake, you want freedom for those around you, the world is going to have something against that. Popular culture is going to try to change the narrative of what you're doing. Right? Structures that we have right now wasn't built for that. Right? The spirits of this world are not going to allow that. If at whatever point you decide that your freedom needs to extend past you, be ready for a fight. Because the world doesn't want that. There's so much more that I want to say about who this means we need to be and who this means we are as a church. But for now, I'll save that for a couple weeks from now. For now, what I hope that we're all coming away with this morning is the fact that our freedom on any level, is central to the focus of Jesus. And that there will be people who don't see it because they don't want to see it, but that doesn't change who you are. And there will, you can expect it, be a fight, an active fight on every level to prevent our liberation. The church, the God of the universe, and the creator of all things has already overcome, and he will see us through. He will not lose sight of his central focus to be good news, to release, to heal, to set free. As Pastor KT so brilliantly and inspiredly said last week, in his introduction, we were created for freedom. And I believe that the Lord intends to see that through. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we had fallen away, when you saw the very enslaved nature of our world. You saw people worth saving. Lord, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you saw a method of dealing with freedom that would free not just a generation, not just one bloodline, not just a heritage, but all who would come to believe, all who accept the good news of the hope, the joy, the life, the promise of your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for sending a compassionate savior who establishes justice by way of freedom. Lord, we pray 
for your forgiveness for the ways that we have allowed the chains in our life to affect our minds, the chains in our lives to affect our behaviors. God, we, we ask for forgiveness for not seeing it before. But we ask for forgiveness for the ways that we've held other people in chains. Lord, we pray that you would give us the wisdom, the recollection of our identity in times where we start to lose focus. Lord, we pray that you would give us the endurance when the world wages war against us. We ask, Lord, for the faith to see it through as you have. God, we pray that you would surround us in community with those who are willing to fight forward with us for the freedom of our minds, for the freedom of our hearts, for the freedom of our lives, and for freedom of our entire community. God, we ask that we stay focused on this path because this morning we acknowledge that it's the only one that doesn't enslave us, that doesn't lead us to temptation, but rather, Father, it is your path that leads us to deliverance for eternity. In Jesus' name, we pray. All who believe say, bless up.